the very first sermon that I ever preached in my life at the ripe age of 20 was on the text that we heard this morning from the book of Acts. And spoiler alert, it was about seeing God in the other. I loved this story then, and I've loved it ever since. It's only grown in importance for me. It even made it into the one thing I've ever had semi-published, which is my paper, Fashioned in Love, about my biblical and theological foundations for queer liberation, celebration, and unequivocal blessing within the church. And also, fair warning, this sermon is a little bit longer than my shorter Lenten sermons. I mentioned that at the worship meeting beforehand, and Anna said they would appreciate knowing that ahead of time. So settle in. It's going to be hopefully a fun but longer than usual ride. The start of Acts 10 details Peter's dramatic vision. It actually starts with Cornelius's, but I'm going to jump to Peter. Peter's dramatic vision of a slew of ritually unclean animals spread on a vast sheet being lowered from heaven. God's command to eat, or to be more precise and more graphic, kill and eat. Peter's disgust at the insinuation that he would eat that which was forbidden to eat. And God's profound response What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Peter's whole world at this is topsy-turvy. The old categories, clean and unclean, sacred and profane, no longer seem to be operative by divine decree. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And in this experience, Peter encounters a dramatic contradiction between God's voice and God's word. God's word was clear. This food is unclean. God's voice was also clear. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And this contradiction, it could have been debilitating, it could have been faith-shattering, or at least faith-rattling, except that Peter had already been introduced to the idea that things were about to get messier. God's capital W word, the Logos, Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Word incarnate, had already begun to shake everything up for Peter and his companions. So... When faced with this new contradiction between God's scripture and God's new spirit voice, Peter could still hear hear and feel Jesus reverberating alive within him. He did not know precisely what to do about this word-voice discrepancy, but he'd learned enough about Jesus' oddities to pay close attention to that which the spirit saw fit to repeat Not once, not twice, but three times. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And a third time. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now, were this the end of the tale, we might be tempted to chalk it up to a hunger-induced delusion. We know two things about Peter going up to the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's home in Joppa, which was the site of this bizarre vision. We know, one, that he went to pray, and two, that he was hungry. So you can't blame the guy for having visions of food. (laughs) And forbidden 
food at that, a temptation, right? He was trying to pray while hungry, and while it's not a lethal combination by any means, I do feel compelled to issue this warning, don't try this at home. (laughs) If your goal is prayer with any semblance of focus, don't do it when you're hungry. So, Peter's praying on the roof, and he's hungry. It's not so surprising that he began to have visions of spreads of food. And like I said, if this were the end of the tale, hunger-induced delusion might be an explanation for the vision and the voice. But it is not the end of the tale. Not even close. While he's still contemplating the meaning and the impact of this peculiar vision, while he still hears the strange command ringing in his ears, what God has made clean you must not call profane, While Peter was still on the rooftop pondering, he hears the voice of the Spirit again and a synchronicity of Holy Spirit voices and message that were heard by a whole cast of characters, including Cornelius, who were willing to heed those strange messages. All of that leads to an unprecedented home visit. And really, all of Acts 10 and 11 is a great read. Pretty short and a really fantastic read. I commend it to you. It's also a bit repetitive, frankly, which is, I think, drives home just how formative this story must have been for those earliest followers of the Jesus way after Jesus was gone. So formative that they told it several ways right on top of one another. Peter, accompanied by other believers from Joppa, makes his way to the home of Cornelius the Greek military commander, and yes, a Gentile. Now, home visit with folks of another faith doesn't sound so scandalous to our modern ears, but the significance of this breach cannot be overstated. This house call would have been strictly verboten. And yet, Peter goes. In heeding the Spirit's voice, Peter's beginning to experience and understand the untamed nature of the Holy Spirit. But it's a steep learning curve. Though he enters the home of Cornelius, he feels a need to preface. He says, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. It's as though he wants to be sure they know that he knows that he's violating his own religious belief, practice, and law. So he does that whole preface thing as he walks in. But he doesn't stop there. And in fact, a truly miraculous thing happens Peter demonstrates an astonishing ability to mine the depths of the meaning and the impact of that rooftop vision that he had of food. And a light bulb goes on for him at this home of Cornelius. It turns out that that sheet of animals set for slaughter was about more than just food. It turns out that the voice of God's spirit was addressing more than simply dietary laws. It turns out that the vision was about a fundamental character of God being revealed by the voice of a spirit that one might accurately call mad. That is absurd and wild and utterly unpredictable. Peter, who is only beginning to know the startling spirit, continues with his preface, taking a turn that can only be described as spirit-led. He goes on, But God has shown me that I should not call anything profane or unclean. And he takes it even further, majestically orating, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. 
So after that initial rooftop vision, after a long spiritual journey to making a house call for a bunch of Gentiles against all of Peter's expectations, Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit and his presence. Gentiles. (laughs) Again, the scandal is lost in translation here. You can substitute Gentile with any contemporary version of the despicable, deplorable other. And while Mennonites might be polite about those we find despicable, we'd never say it to their faces. If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we have no fewer despicable, deplorable others than our neighbors have. Catch me after worship and I'll tell you some of those folks where I encountered my bias in the last couple of days. Hmm, interesting. Does that intrigue you? I'm not going to say it from here. Find me later. So Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit in Peter's presence. Gentiles. Peter and his companions are astounded. They are dumbfounded that the Holy Spirit is poured out even on Gentiles. While Peter and his friends are astonished, there's no denying the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because the fruits of the Spirit are immediately and undeniably present in Cornelius and his fellow Gentiles. You might say that this absurdly reckless spirit outpouring itself this way and that, has testified on their behalf, so there can be no denial. Peter's beginning to get this fundamental truth about the Spirit. The Spirit will fall where it will. It just will. It's going to be poured out. Poured out lavishly on any and every and all. Peter poses a question that he knows the Spirit has already answered. He says, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He's a gatekeeper with the waters of baptism and with welcome into the Jesus-following community. And he knows it. He says, can I, can you, can any of us withhold? This tale is still not over for Peter. For having entered the house of a Gentile, shared a meal with Gentiles, offering baptism to Gentiles, Peter is criticized by apostles all over Judea who hear this scandalous story and, I'm guessing, wish by an ardent denunciation to retain their own sense of purity. When confronted directly and challenged to respect the good and orderly religious boundaries, Peter details the entire wild, spirit-led adventure. He reminds his fellow believers of Jesus' mysterious promise that while John the baptizer baptized with water, they would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He at long last begins to find words for having experienced that reverberation of God in Christ, that aliveness, the way that Jesus was still strangely alive for him and his community in the form of a spirit who was both mad and holy. And Peter concludes his public witness with this. If then God gave them the same gift that God gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Who was I that I could hinder God? This is good. 
This is the challenge of our faith's calling at its core. Who are, who are humans that they, that we, could hinder God? Who are we to stand in the way of a God who consistently empowers the least likely souls to play invaluable roles in a divine narrative? Who are we to block a Jesus who persistently set, shares table fellowship with the lowliest of riffraff that he can drum up from the roads and back roads and alleyways? Who are we to hinder a spirit who recklessly pours itself out on any and every and all? Who are humans that we could hinder God? We do like things in good order. And the spirit relishes in lavish and imprecise, wild and absurd outpourings. Evidence of the Spirit keeps popping up in the most unexpected and, frankly, offensive places. So part of the church's task is to attempt to keep up. (laughs) Keep up with the frenetic movement of the Holy Spirit to sharpen our vision in noticing the surprising places where the Spirit keeps showing up and then daring to join the Spirit there (laughs) with those people who become our people, as we become their people, as we together become a bigger and wilder and woolier and holier we. And finally, another part of the church's task is to get enough out of the way so that we don't end up blocking or withholding or otherwise interfering with the Spirit's mad project of filling and transforming everyone and everything in its path. Our congregation, Seattle Mennonite Church, many years ago now, began a careful season of discernment around a group of folks othered and even despised by our broader Mennonite community. Gay, lesbian, bi, trans folks. And we were far from alone Other Mennonite congregations had gone before us, and others were essentially on pace with us in their own discernment, and many others have followed since. It was not painless and wasn't without loss. I wasn't here at that time, but I have heard some of those stories. But our church discerned carefully, faithfully, and clearly God's wide welcome to all that we would not other that we would explicitly proclaim God's blessing and our church's blessing to all at every level of church life, membership, marriage, ministry, and beyond. And we've been living more fully into that clear discernment as a central piece of our identity ever since. In recent years, we've had the joyous invitation to learn more deeply and fully what it means more specifically, to proclaim and live that welcome that we discerned a long time ago with our trans, queer, non-binary, and gender non-conforming folks. Thanks be to God for this invitation and these new learnings in the last years. We're learning, for example, more about the importance of sharing our pronouns with one another. For example, I'm Megan, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. You can also see them on my fancy new name tag. 
It perhaps seems a small thing, but it's a really important thing. And especially for those of us like me who are cisgender, relatively gender conforming, and accustomed to having folks correctly gender us. In my case, it happens almost 100% of the time. It's possible with short hair, I've been sirred a couple of times, but basically I am gendered correctly all the time. Just this week, there was a piece that was making the rounds that began this way. Dear cis people who put your pronouns on your hello, my name is name tags. Thank you. When you do that, I feel more comfortable putting my pronouns, they, them. I feel more comfortable being visibly out as non-binary. I feel more comfortable asking people to use the pronouns that feel most like me, that make me feel most seen and whole instead of just resolving to be misgendered and misrepresented misrepresented and whatever, who cares anyway. And the writer continues, it's an ongoing cultural struggle right now to break our eyes open to more than the two binary gender roles. We're all still learning. We're all still learning. Non-binary and trans folks are still evolving the language and culture, and educators are still figuring out the best way to communicate that theory and compassion. It's a challenge to undo the cultural systems that have been normalized all our lives. And yet we must. If we want to support everyone to live their best lives, we must. If we want to be honoring of everyone, we must. If we want to honor the mad and holy spirit among us, we must. We are learning. We are learning more about bathrooms and signage. And maybe it's the first time we've ever had a toilet on our altar. We're going to hear more about that later. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a image of a toilet on our altar. We are learning more about bathrooms and signage and about how to make our physical space itself more hospitable. We're learning more about communicating clearly and quickly with culturally recognized symbols like the trans flag in addition to the rainbow pride flag. Because here's the thing, pretty much every single church says they're welcoming, right? Every church wants to be a place of welcome. Every single one. And those who best know how often a welcome is conditional, those whose bodies and identities have been despised or subject to judgment, those folks who are seeking a faith community are accustomed to scanning very quickly for clues as to whether this church's welcome is going to apply to me or not. We are learning and we will still learn more, and I am eager to discover all the new paths our long and faithful discernment will carry us down. I'm going to say it even though I don't really believe it. I'm eager to make mistakes. Ah! (laughs) Eager to make mistakes on the way to learning. As Peter and Cornelius could both testify, a lot can happen between Caesarea and Joppa. We humans like things in good order, and the Spirit relishes in lavish and imprecise, wild and absurd outpourings, and evidence of the Spirit keeps popping up in the most unexpected places. Consistently in the book of Acts, it's the in-crowd that is baffled, astounded, angered, scandalized by the imprecision of the Spirit's outpourings. The Spirit's intrusion into matters that are best left alone. 
And still today, just as soon as the church declares some unworthy or other or outside, we are stubborn little buggers. You can be sure that the Spirit is about to show up, disproving us once again. Frankly, it's embarrassing. The Spirit is no respecter of boundaries, rules, good and orderly conduct. So to circle back around and to come close to the conclusion of this long sermon, you held in there, folks. We're almost there. Part of the church's task is to attempt keeping up with the frenetic movement of the Holy Spirit, to sharpen our vision in noticing the surprising places the Spirit keeps showing up, and then daring to join the Spirit there with those people. Those people who become our people as we become their people, as we together become a bigger and wilder and woolier and holier we. In other words, come and see, go and tell. And as our visual artists reminded me just this week, oh yeah, oops, the sermon could have been done in six words. There you go. Come and see, go and tell. As our visual artist reminded me this week, of some favorite words from a favorite poet, Mary Oliver's instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. That's essentially the book of Acts right there. So part of the church's task, get enough out of the way so we don't end up blocking or withholding or otherwise interfering with the Spirit's mad project. The Spirit's mad project of filling and transforming any and all in its path. And this is my prayer for us, Seattle Mennonite Church, that we may recognize the lavish outpourings of a mad and holy spirit here within our congregation. May we recognize the lavish outpourings of a mad and holy spirit outside these church walls and on our street corners and in the least likely nooks and crannies of this world. And may we know that mad spirit to be holy. May it be so.